What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. I figured out why Jason has a website. Why is that? It's not exactly the easiest bloke to talk to. Well, let's try that. Hello. Can I speak to uh, Jason Buffhead Furman, please? Uh, what are you doing, you? <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. That's the kind of treatment you'll get if you actually dial Jason from Mindrick Dog Quip. So what you need to do if you want any leashes, tugs, harnesses, balls, reward toys, canine fitness and conditioning equipment, Herm Springer things, anything like that, head to EinswickDogQuip.com. That's E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com because you do not want to have to talk to this guy. <laughs> Glenn, what are you doing? I'm enjoying a delicious treat from Bright's Bites. The dog training treats? The same. I've heard that Bright's Bites are not just healthy and nutritious for dogs, but they're so delicious, they're actually a very motivational form of training. They are indeed. We've tested and tried them on site, and they work just great. Well, how did you get a hold of those? Did you purchase them off of a website? I went to dogsquadcanineservices.com.au. That's where people should go to get themselves some Bright's Bites, healthy, nutritious, but also highly motivational dog training treats. Get them in your dog, y'all. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio again today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello, everyone. How are you? Are you asking me or them? Them. <laughs> I know I'm not going to reply. <laughs> <laughs> but they reply in the discussion group. Okay. Okay. So it just makes it inclusive for everybody. Uh-huh. Otherwise, yeah. it's just like two boobs talking in microphones. Yeah. Which is what it is. Yeah. All right. Hey, so ask us anything, questions answered episode. Two. This is part two. Part two. Because we didn't get anywhere near getting through all those questions. I feel like this happens most times we do this. Yeah, well, that's why we had a part two. So we didn't exclude other people who came on to kindly yeah. ask us questions. Yeah. Because we've still got to do urban myths part two. Yeah, but we need those. We, I know, we need urban myths. So we are planning on doing an urban myth. We got some good laughs out of the other one. It was fun for us to do as well. So yeah. if you've got some good urban myths, we'd like to start. Like, don't answer them, but, you know, like we can put the urban myth up yeah, and then we can have some fun with it. List them. List Send them, them to yeah. us. Yeah. So, let's create a little discussion point about urban myths and then we can- um, Yeah. We this, can will, this sounds like something Emma Murdoch should do. You, you create the post and then people can uh, reply under that. <laughs> <laughs> um, sounds good. All right. So, let's just kick straight into it. Dan O'Brien says- your thoughts on the concept of drive channeling and its importance, if any, in the development of a working or sport dog. Hmm. What do you think about that? It is important. Yeah, it's super important. It's very important. I think drive channeling, uh, I think some people sort of use that as a, a blanket descriptor of many things. Mm. 
But I think what I'm hoping what you mean is, you know, the idea of being able to turn a dog on and off as well as tell the dog what it can and can't express drive into, right? Would you agree with that? That's what most yeah. people are probably talking about. I guess my definition of it is having clarity in what drive you are actually in at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when we do back tying work with dogs or even use frameworking where we're trying to develop defense drive in a dog, mm-hmm. you know, and then rewarding the dog for displaying correct postures. Mm-hmm. So, if, for example, when we get the dog up on the frame and we're working the dog, what we're trying to do is establish a mindset that, yes, you're truly in defense, mm-hmm. you know, like you're showing a high level of aggression, which is what we're trying to build in the dog at the time, trying to make it a little bit more serious. Mm-hmm. And then we're bringing the dog into prey. Yep. So immediately rewarding the dog. So we're saying, okay, this is the expression of drive I want to see. Like I want to see you bring out, not just, you know, running up and going through the motions of barking and wolf, 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 et cetera. But I want to see some attitude. I want to see some explosion. I want to know this is real. Yeah. It's not just going through. We're not playing pretendies. We're anymore. not playing pretendies. It's not a pantomime anymore. Like what I want to see is true drive expression. I want to see you explode out at the decoy and then be rewarded for mm-hmm. it. So you, you can switch drives in your work. Yeah. I think also it's really important that a dog understand that he can and should be able to switch drives and yes. that when you when the picture presents itself, one picture that should indicate the dog be in, say, in prey, yep. you can then tell him, actually, I need you to be in defense right now or display the picture of like real aggression. Mm. So I think sometimes uh, – people who do a lack of drive channeling can sometimes have difficulty engaging, say, a passive target because their picture of the defensive picture means the dog's on the table and yep. the decoy's coming at him staunch face and aggressive and, you know, like what would put the dog into defense. And the drive channeling is the switching of gears. Yep. And then if you're not able to switch the gears on the dog and say, like you give a command or a word or whatever, and then that is an indicator to the dog that you're about to turn the decoy on, right, and that he's about to become that picture of the real aggression picture. Mm. If you ever want to send your dog against a totally passive target outside of a suit, whatever, you're going to need to have your dog be convinced that you're saying that guy is about to become a real threat to you. Yep. And if he hasn't seen the picture of that happening, he's not going to believe you that it's going to happen. Right. So you really want a classical response with that. You want the yeah. dog to feel it and experience the emotion of it. Yeah. So when the dog is in there, you can say, wow, this dog is actually serious. Like yeah. He's not just going through the motions, not just playing a game. Like He's really in the mindset of being in defense drive at the moment. Yeah. And of course, once that happens, I mean, Jerry Bradshaw is fantastic at, at explaining this. Yeah, he, well, the whole controlled aggression this the is whole basically co- what it's about. Yeah, it is It is about Jerry's controlled. And, you know, this was predominantly a very old school way of doing things. I guess it changed because the politically correct movement didn't like to see that because you're creating a serious dog. Mm-hmm. But the reality is without this, what we start to do is we create a dog who just goes through a routine. Like I said before, the exact descriptor is it becomes more a pantomime than a real experience. The problem then is if you are trying to produce dogs for real working situations, you're going to get a dog that thinks, oh, this is real. I'm, I'm out. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of this. And that that's a real problem because yeah. what we're doing is we're dumbing it down and we're creating dogs who are becoming softer and softer and softer. And these are dogs that, you know, you've talked about this many times, Pat, where you can run them off the field. Yeah. Because they, they think, oh, I, I, I don't know how to deal with this. I'm, yeah. I'm out. Yeah. So if for real life, I think it's important to be able to show a dog like, hey, even though that 
doesn't look like a threat to you, it is. Mm. And you, you can only do that from multiple repetitions in training. It's like, you, as you say, a classical response yep. where the dog, you just say the word pointing him in a certain direction and he assumes that that person who's non-threatening now is going to be. He's got to feel it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, uh, you know, in the real world, as much as people don't like to hear this, like you don't actually ever want your dog to bite anyone, especially if you're a security guard, right? Working the street with your dog. You, yeah. The last thing you want is for that dog to actually bite anyone. The whole point of it is that it's intimidation. It, of course and it is. What, yeah, it backs the offender down. Yeah. So if you constantly put yourself in a position where your dog will only activate against what it, it feels as a threat, yep. then the situation has to escalate to the point where people are actually threatening you or the dog before your dog will give a response. Mm. What you want is for the person to be passive and becoming kind of, if you're in a guard type situation, presenting like an annoying picture and you're able to activate the dog against them to scare them away. In a dream world, the bite never happens and it's exactly like how aggression works in the natural world, but you then have to be able to show the dog like that's the guy, bark at him crazy like you want to bite him and then the guy goes, oh, I don't want to get bit by a dog and leaves. Well, um, as I used to say in the old days when I was actually working with dogs on the street is biting creates paperwork. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and like, you know, especially if someone's just being a drunk dickhead, you don't want them to lose the use of their arm forever. That's right. I mean, this, I mean, this a lot of times when, when you're out there actually doing security work or law enforcement or anything like that, I mean, you know, a guy who makes a mistake and mouths off a bit and gets a bit drunk and a bit toey, I mean, he's still somebody's dad yeah. or son or brother or something like that. I mean, he's a dickhead for the night, but not for the rest of his life. Yeah, that's right. And does he deserve to be hospitalized and beaten down and, you know, like have his calf muscle torn out by a dog and stuff like that? I mean, if you have no other choice and you're backed up and someone's coming at you, I mean, my dogs have taken live bites on people Yeah, because I've been backed into a corner Yeah, and I've walked backwards, walked backwards and they advanced on. Thankfully, I had dogs that knew and had been trained in that old school style that they thought this isn't fuck around and this guy's coming in. Yeah. I'm going to take a lump out of him. Yeah. And I think it's reasonable. We're kind of off the topic of the question, but I think it, in all fun. those good yeah, <laughs> in all those aspects, I think it's reasonable to use the minimum viable force. Absolutely. Uh, I think that whenever you're in a threat situation, I feel like that in, in real life, the minimum yeah. viable force, force is what you should be going for. Yeah. And like, that's not to, people get upset about that. Uh, you know, People say, oh, your pussy should go over the top. Well, like I'm a person that's called airstrikes on people, so I'm not afraid of using the maximum. Yeah. But like you- uh, But it's situational, Yeah, right? that's right. Like mm. the the minimum viable because, you know, people's, you don't know how people got in that circumstance, man. Leave yeah. Well, there's a, a saying in the legality term in the use of force that it should never be disproportionate to the objective. Yeah. So you've got to have the upper hand on somebody when you're defending something. But the reality is, is what is the upper hand? Like I said, if you go to court and your dog has chewed somebody's muscle out of their leg, there's a very strong chance that the prosecutor will deem you as being excessive. Yeah, potentially, yeah. yeah. But yeah, this is off topic. Yeah, but so <laughs> to go back to the topic then, yep. I think that your question sort of has three parts and we've covered one and that's sort of being able to tell a dog that, hey, this is serious before it comes becomes serious yep. can sometimes avoid that situation. The other really important part of drive channeling is also then being able to tell a dog, hey, this isn't a threat anymore. Switch so, off. Yeah. So mm. going back the other way. And yep. so going from like, hey, you have just bitten someone and been in a serious fight, now come back and deal with the next threat or there is no further threats, turn off and calm down. Yep. And, uh, you know, in the real world, that's very important. And in sports, that's very important as well, because, you know, this is the idea of drive channeling in, say, in PSA, IPO as well. You would argue the bite always, pretty much always happens in prey if it's taught correctly, even a, a courage test with a, a decoy charging at the dog, that really for most dogs is still going to keep them in prey all the way in. 
But then during the drive is the idea of where we then put the dog into defense during the drive. Yep. And then the problem is the a dog that's actually in a feels as though he's actually in a real fight is a lot harder to control. Mm. And so then you need him to be able to understand, okay, the drive finished, therefore I should switch drives and go back into prey. And now I'm biting this because I enjoy biting it right. rather than I'm fearful or I'm con- uh, not fearful. I'm concerned over what could happen. Right. Yes. And then if you've do- got a dog that can't channel as in then, completely switch off one decoy and go to the other, then in the sports, you're going to have a hard time yeah. then competing in the next scenario, especially if the decoy from the other scenario is still present. And and that's something I've faced as well. Like, mm. cause you know, he's a good example of why Sean wears the mask, right? Like the, that Deadpool mask fucks up dogs, man. Yeah. Like it, it really puts a layer of pressure onto dogs that they're not used to seeing. If you mm. haven't trained that picture, then it really can make a dog think like, shit, this is, I can't get a read on this person. I can't see their face. I don't know what they're, I can only go by their body actions, you know? Yep. And so a good example of that is in my level two, I always taught my dog in the two-man courage test, bite the decoy on the right, right? Yep. And remember, in training, he, he always bites the decoy on the right. We would swap decoys over. It's always the one on the right because I just prefer – first of all, I want to take away some choice paralysis. Yep. I don't want him having to make decisions in that picture. I just know, okay, I'll bite that one on the right. Uh, and then it kind of leads to the scenario flowing a little bit better because then the decoy on the left is the one that gets the um, – the handler attack, right? So they're on my left side. It makes it, it just how I like to, it just works it. it. Yeah. But in both level twos I did, Sean was on the, on the left and you can actually see in the video, my dog takes off with intention to go to the decoy on the right. And within an instant says, nah, fuck that. Like that guy on the left is the, is the threat and changes out of his normal condition pattern. He goes, Mm. no, 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 I need to bite him. So you can see there is an element of defense in that, right? Like he's like, shit, that's actually a real threat to me. This is, we're not playing pretendies anymore. And this is with someone who he was cuddling with an hour earlier. And some dogs have preferred decoy as well. Yeah, true. True Mm. that, right? Randy selects you out of a bunch of people. Yeah. Like if he has a choice of three people and they're all running at him and he sees you in the the mix, he goes, oh, Pat's my decoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that delicious leg. He's got a delicious leg. Yeah. But that's not always a great thing that it, that can, uh, yeah, serve can, be, a, a, pain the ass, that can yeah. be a pain in the ass because, you know, like if you've got a situation where, as you said before, this is primarily an establishment of clarity in the dog, mm. like, you know, telling the dog, this is how you need to feel right now. And this is what you need to channel after. So if you've got a, a situation where you've got a scenario of three decoys, and let's say, for example, you're there and you're the passive decoy and I've got my dog fixated on you. That's a problem for me mm. because you're not the like if I give the cue and the dog thinks, well, I'm going to run down the field and chase after Pat. That's a bad scenario for me. Yeah. You know, that that's cost me a trial or points or whatever it is. So yeah. drive channeling is important because you need to be able to say to your dog, you need to be clear about where you are now. You've, you've got to have clear headspace and be able to take direction and listen to me. Yeah. The you other can thing, feel it, but you need to be responsive to what I'm telling you. Yeah. So the other thing that sort of comes under the uh, banner of drive channeling sometimes is uh, something that's really important to me is that my dog can take a reinforcer in the presence of a higher value reinforcer yep. and actually find what I give him reinforcing. Yep. I think that's really important if you're like, I want to be able to do obedience around two agitating decoys and reinforce my dog with a ball. 
and him find it reinforcing and not, not be ripped of, off. Yeah, not yep. begrudgingly take it. Like yep. understand like this is this is what I have and I should take it and really yep. enjoy it, get into it. Um, and I think in the sports that's really important. But then I feel like in real life that's really important too. Because Absolutely. That then can show your dog like, hey, it's this job over this job because that's the same neural pathway. When yep. when you're saying to the dog, it's this reinforcer over this reinforcer. You've still got something to download into. Yeah, but yep. that that's the same neural pathway as it's this job over that job. Yeah, and you know the like decoy neutrality then kind of comes under that drive um, channeling and, and people say, Oh, that's for sports. Well, you know, the thing is like hysterical bystanders look a lot like active decoys. Right. So when you're at a, a and a, so do other security guards or police officers who are standing next. Nearby yeah. That's you. it. So, so have been bitten in the line before because they haven't trained for this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It happens kind of all the time. It does. One thing I wanted to hit on there, you know, we just said choice paralysis, right? Have you ever heard of Hicks law? Do you know, you know about that? Remind me. So Hicks Law, I'm probably going to butcher this and I'm sure someone will, will, will cut me to pieces, but essentially it's the introduction of a decision will uh, will slow down an action process, right? So if you have uh, a light and a button and I say, when this light turns on, push the button, I can then get a, a baseline of your response, mm-hmm. right? And then if I say, when this light goes on, you can push either one of these two buttons. I don't care which one, but either one of them, that's fine. When the light turns on, your action of pushing one of the buttons will be slower than when there was only one button. And that will be because you had to decide which one. Even though I told you you could do either, you still had to make that decision. And the more variables there is, the longer it's going to take you to make action uh, because you have to decide. Mm -hmm. And so wherever possible in a situation like that, you know, with our dogs where you want like an immediacy of action, you want to minimize the variables, yep. right? So that even so that the dog sees like, oh, even though there's six people, even though there's six, you know, uh, variables of action, there's actually only one because I've seen this scenario and I only ever bite the one on the right. So I don't have to make a decision about biting the left or the right. It just happens immediately. Yep. Like I say, I've trained intentionally, consi- keeping that in mind, have trained that intentionally and still got fucked by the, <laughs> by the idea that he saw the other decoy and was like, no, that's the one that I want. Yep. But yeah, Hicks Law is an interesting one. It, mm. it, it, it applies to a lot of different things, um, especially like my old background. We talk about that in like reflex response type to a surprise attack or something like that. Yep. You want to just like a lot of people like, I got six techniques for that. And you're like, you will use neither. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're better to have one that you will actually that you use. do well. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I think that answers the question. All right, Rebecca Hoffman, FOMO, fear of missing out in the dog world. How did Pat Stewart and Glenn Cook decide what to invest their time into as developing dog trainers, balancing between trying to learn everything or concentrating on mastering aspects of the craft? That's a tough question, Rebecca. That that is a tough question. That's almost an episode on itself, I'd say. Yeah, maybe. I think got a lot of like. Let me have a look. Yep, seven likes and one love. Wow, who loved Um, it? Jordan Rowland. Okay. I think for me, a few years ago, especially when I started studying under Bart, I really decided that I wanted to get into the idea of understanding behavioral science and motivators in mm. that way. Because while I don't I don't need to then be an expert in any one field to understand perhaps why a dog might be motivated to do one thing or another. Like I really only then have to understand what are this dog's motivators. And then I can understand why behavior might go a particular way and then use those motivators to influence the dog to do another particular behavior. Mm. So for me, uh, that's why I chose to become crazily obsessed with learning theory 
Um, and even though a lot of people, a lot, if you've ever been to a, a seminar, I teach it, a lot of people, you know, they have like a very surface level understanding of learning theory and they understand classical and operant conditioning and just kind of leave it there. Like, yeah, I know the quadrants and I understand classical conditioning to be yeah, one signal. They do the, the kindergarten version of it. Yeah. Mm. And I think I just, and I was the same for a long, long time. And I, I decided in, instead to go really, truly deeply understand those things and then understand the second and third order effects. Like, okay, like this is happening as a classical response, but uh, why? Like, yeah. how did that come to be? And what is cake. the effect of that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's where, that's why I chose to really narrow in on that. And what it means is that I'm going to be okay at everything, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the best at anything. But I feel like in my role and what I enjoy to do with dogs, that's probably best suited for me at the but, moment. But who is the best at everything? No, but that's what I mean. Like at mm. anything, you know what I mean? Like yeah. the, if you, there's people who are unbelievable at one aspect of dog training and don't know shit about others. Yeah. And, you know, admit it themselves and are not just not interested. Mm. And that level of extreme specialization while appealing, I don't think really is as good at putting food on the table, yep. if I'm honest. Like mm. there's less work in that and you can really get too pigeonholed. So, uh, yeah, for me, that's why I decided to really become obsessed with and understand just the basics, the absolute foundation of why does a dog do anything mm-hmm. He's either it, it's to better his own situation. And, and that's happening because of a classical or an operant response. Yep. Um, and from there you can understand most things. Mm. That's my take on it. That's a very good response. Thank How, you, Glenn. The part of it is... <laughs> I guess my point there is that it's difficult to answer against that because I agree with everything you said, um, <laughs> which is without sounding like a copycat, it's primarily why I got into it as well. You know, like there are many of that facet interests why I was involved in it. I mean, you and I think very similar on a lot of things, but we've varied and we've got our own personality and style in training. You know, you've got your own nuances. I've got mine. We agree on pretty much everything like we do a lot of stuff uh, but you've become more specialist in napopo i love the interaction and the relationship between handler and dog i love seeing what makes the person on the end of the lead tick as well because that's the intrigue that i've been having over the years that i've developed as a trainer is it's one thing to train a dog it's a completely different kettle of fish to train the person on the end of the lead like Mm. getting them to understand what it's all about how it comes together, you know, and you you made a very good point about their understanding of behavioral sciences, which is extremely limited. Like a lot of people will nod their head and they'll say, you know, it's kind of like, do you know the words to this song? And people go, oh, yeah, and you'll say, well, sing it. And they'll say, and they'll hum along to the song and not really know the lyrics to it. And or they don't know the meaning of the song. They don't know why it was written or what it was about. You know, like there's been plenty of times where I've heard artists sing about things and you know, you you can know the words verbatim, but you don't know who they were singing about and what they were singing about. And I've seen that a lot of times when I've seen trainers training dogs or handlers handling dogs. Like they go through the motions of being able to do it, yeah. but there's not many people who know how it all comes together and how the picture works out. And that's my intrigue on that is going deeper into that understanding of it and, and saying to people at the end of the day, why did you get this dog? What did it mean to you and what does it mean to hang on to it from here on in? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm. Why did you get this dog? Yeah. It's a question I ask when I go out to do private lessons with people. It's a question I ask 
it's the start question I ask, the lead question I ask people, why did you get this dog? Yeah. You know, like tell me what this dog meant to you when you first got it. Now, by asking that question, I can discern in no matter of time if they're going to hang on to the dog or not, if mm-hmm. that dog is staying in the home or not, because sometimes it was just an ornament to fill in the backyard or sometimes it, it started off as something they were deeply passionate about, but something changed, you know, and then we have to reawaken can we get this feeling back or is it gone? Yeah. Yeah. I like asking that. And, you know, uh, with a lot of the people I sort of talk to at the moment, I say, why do you have this dog? I use different language. I tend to say like, what is this dog's purpose? Right. Yep. yep. And people give a list of things and they say like companion and then sport dog and those kind of things. And I go, okay, but now I need you to tell me which one of those is more important to you. Yep. Because is he your companion you do sports with or is he your sport dog that you do that is your companion? Because they're really fucking different dogs. Yeah. That, that's really going to change how we treat this dog, right? If you want to do really well, if you want to build the maximum power in this dog, he can still be your companion, but he's going to be a different type. Yep. Right? But if you want to just have a super cool dog that you love hanging out with and maybe compete and have some fun, well, that's a different it's style a, yeah. again, right? We're going to yep. treat this dog differently. and. Sort of judgment free. I always say to people, like, hey, uh, like, whatever you want, like, it's, it's fine. important to know. As long as we're not being unethical to the dog, like, yeah. it's important to know if it's this dog, know. if your ego is pushing you to be a, like, if you have to, if you've got to be in your bonnet and you have to win a competition to prove a point, I don't care if it's to prove a point to your neighbor to say, fuck you, right? like, that's whatever. <laughs> I'm on the clock for you. Yep. But we need to really understand the true motivation here mm. and work towards that true motivation. 100%. Yeah. I think that's so important to understand. You know, this is what we talk about in dogs, and this is why my obsession with behavioral science is like I want to understand the dog's true motivation. Yeah. But you know, all these things that behavioral science was not gifted to us as a way to train dogs. No, it's, no, it's, we've we've established that along yeah, the way. Like none anything of, with a brain. <laughs> any of these old the behaviorists. Yeah, the yeah, behaviorists, yeah. None of them, none of them ever sat around and thought, you know what? In fifty years' time, we're going to be heralded as the greatest as, uh, dog trainers. Yeah, the greatest dog trainers, <laughs> like you know, a, a selection or a symposium of dog trainers. Yeah, they were doing it to control us. Yeah, you know, yeah. like to influence human behavior. Yeah, and, or how to understand why we do because that's the important question. You know, what does a dog do as it does? That's in, just as important to ask about a human being. Yeah, totally. Like, we're obsessed with that question, what's the meaning of life? Yeah. I don't think many people have adequately answered that. Like, people have had a go at it. You know, there's been- 42. 42. 42. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, you have to now watch The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to understand that. Don't watch it. Read the book. Yeah, read the book. The book's so much better than the movie. Yeah. Yeah, the movie was pretty bland. Yeah, comparatively. Yeah, the book is the, the series. Good. The the TV series was pretty funny. I don't. I haven't seen that. Yeah, the TV series was much better than the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, Old school English stuff. I a, a friend of mine gave me that book. He also gave me Catch Twenty Two. Have you read that book? No, that is a fucking good book. Mm. I recommend that to everybody. It's kind of a. It's a very dark comedy. Okay, but it's a it's a war book. Like it's about a guy who's a a bomber. It's all about catch-22s. It's all these things that are problem, but also the solution to their problem, and, and you then can't get out of it. Like, he's ter- he's a terrible soldier. Hey, he's terrible at everything except his job. Yep. So, he's exceptional at being a bomber, um, but he's, like, the worst soldier there is, and, <laughs> and he gets away with life. And then it's like, if he's he tries to get it, he wants to get out of being in the Air Force to, to go home. It's around, I think it's World War II. And then it's like, if he were crazy- 
he could go, right? They were like, oh, well, you're a crazy person. You could go, but only a crazy person is capable of doing his job. So like, yeah, but we have to keep you. <laughs> like it, it, the book is full oh, of catch they've, they've made a, a series on it. I think there's a, they made a movie, but I don't think the movie really did it justice. The book is excellent and it's very- Yeah, there's, there's, some a, there's a Netflix series it. on it. Is there? Yeah. I have to check it out. Yeah, because he can't. He just can't get out of the army. Yeah. 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 No, it's a series. I, now that you're talking about it, I'm, I'm thinking- This is another plug for Netflix. Yeah. As they come up. Yeah, but I was watching it the other day. Like every time he tries to get out, like he tries to be a class A fuck up. Yeah, and they just keep reeling him back in. Like yeah. it's another twelve sorties he has to do. Yeah, and you just think, motherfucker, yeah. you know, like you just see this guy like trying to, like he's he's fantastic as you said as yeah. a bomber, but like he tries to like jeopardize the mission or yeah, sabotage his plane and everything like that. And the commanding officer, who I think is George Clooney. In this, he just keeps roping him in all the time, keeps throwing him under the bus all the time. And, like, he'll go in there and one guy will say, yeah, yeah, we'll get you out. You know, like, you're a fuck up. We want you out of the army. Yeah. And he goes, "Um, so just come into the meeting. And then George Clooney's sitting there and go, nah, you're in for another 12 missions. Yeah. It's a really good book. I, I haven't read it in probably 15 years. <laughs> it's a good years, series, but- too. I actually enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's a series. There's a plug for everybody. Yep. All right. Do we answer the question? Are we ready to move on? Was that Rebecca's one originally? Yeah. Because yeah. we, we, we went on a whole nother tangent that I've now forgotten about. Yeah. We started talking about Catch-22. Oh, you were talking about the meaning of life, which yeah. is a bit heavy for this podcast. Yeah, So we just is. leave it as 42. Segwaying back around, that whole point of why does a dog do what it does? Yeah. And why do human beings do as they do? I mean, they're very important questions to ask because effectively that has some impact on what is the meaning of life. Yeah, yeah. I think we're all just trying to better our situation. Exactly. And that comes down to it. When you when you read philosophy, Tyler Mudo would probably be a good one to chime in on this one as well because he is very philosophical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was a philosophy major at college, college or yeah. uni or wherever he was. But those are important questions to ask. Mm-hmm. All right. Kelly Wolf. what are the top three things you wish every new trainer coming, to the, coming into the industry knew? It's a good one for you because you deal with mostly new trainers coming into the industry on the NDTF course? Well, I think we answered that in as far as behavioural sciences. Mm -hmm. I think if they had an idea of that, that would certainly be a major advantage to them. I guess I also have to answer that by saying what not to do. Mm -hmm. There's There's a lot of people who have perceived concepts of what they should be doing, and that in itself is a little bit of a problem. I guess that... um, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing, and sometimes that is a problem when people come into courses. I'm pretty sure I've used this analogy before. It comes from Bruce Lee's school of thought when he was teaching students, and maybe I've mentioned this on the podcast, but it warrants discussing again. Bruce Lee, it was in a movie or something like that, but I believe that this was true to form in what he used to do. Is He used to get students to line up with a glass of water. And as he'd talk to them, he'd come down with a pitcher full of water and he'd start pouring water into their glasses. And as the water would overflow, he'd excuse each student. He'd say, you're not ready, you're not ready, you're not ready. And Mm -hmm. then he'd get down the end and a couple of students woke up to what was going on and they'd ditch the water out of their glass. And he'd fill the water from the pitcher into their glass and he'd say, you guys can stay. And the reason is, he said, well, if your glass is full, you know, like if you've already come in with a preconceived idea of what my training is or what teaching is about or what learning is about – then there's no point in staying because you already 
have the answers to everything as you believe it. Mm -hmm. And the problem is a lot of times, I mean, even when, you know, to talk on seminars that we've attended before or teachings, you know, the Napopo school, silver and gold, et cetera, and, and learning things there, like Bart and many other teachers that I've worked on and maybe yourself as well, and many other people out there, a lot of things that they are saying, are, are they're repeating the same sort of thing. However, they're still adding influential material into it that you're just thinking, if I'm going in here with a, yeah, 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 I know all this, you'll miss the point of mm -hmm. what they're trying to say, which made them unique and great in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that I'm trying to influence people is don't come in thinking you've got all the keys to the kingdom already. Be prepared to understand that there is some incredible information. And, you know, here's one of the things that I've learned about people in life is that everybody's got a, an amazing story if you take the time to listen to it. Mm -hmm. This is Good one man. of the, the – and, and everybody's got a voice, you know, but some people are too scared to use it sometimes, which is why they – why they do miss out on things in life. And that is one of the things that I've, I've discovered about sitting with students and watching them and, and listening to them is there's some amazing trainers ready to emerge. I'm pretty sure that Einstein said it is that everybody can be a genius at something that everybody does something extremely well. On that, I feel like I could add, I think in, in the path of education, my advice to people is to, you know, seek out as much as you can. Mm. But also digest what you have completely. Yeah. So I see one thing I see a lot of people coming into the industry. That's a good point. Yeah, That's so, a really good point. So now there's mm. so much information available. Yeah. You know, like if you're listening to this, you obviously listen to us, but then there's so many people who have, there's so many online portals yep. who, where for a few bucks a month, like hardly any money, you can get access to insanely high level technical information. Right. But the problem is then I see a lot of people just sort of overwhelming themselves with all of that yep. and not actually sort of digesting it and figuring out how they can implement it into their plan. Yeah. Because we're all different. We're all trying to fragment. They fragment on their thinking. Yeah. Yep. And I feel like if you're going to give someone system a go, like yep. not that I'm like all for like a, this is a system of how to raise a dog or whatever, but if you're going to give someone's, you know, method or technique or whatever a go, sort of give it a good go, right? Yep. Because a lot of the times in behavioral stuff, as we know, things have to get worse before they get better. So you, if someone says, you know, this is a 10 rep process and if at rep five you go, this is bullshit, doesn't work, well, it's self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. Like it's not going to work because you stop, right? Yeah. So I feel and I think that there's so many people that uh, take in so much information. I, I've had someone say at a seminar once, like you say this and Larry Crone says this. And I say, yeah, we're actually talking about the same thing, but from another perspective. It's I can see why you think we're saying different things. Yeah but we're coming at it from different ways. And so our lens onto the same thing is different, right? Yep. We're looking at different windows of the same thing. So we're describing the same thing, but from different angles. Yep. And you need to really properly understand both to be able to understand that. So what I say is like, pick me or Larry, I don't mind, which either one, and really understand what we're saying. Yep. And then go and have a look at the other rather than go, I think I know what you mean. Like really digest everything that's available to you and mm. then move on to the next thing rather than, just take in a lot of a little bit. I think that's quite dangerous. And then you end up just confusing your dog. I see people that it's what we've talked about in the past with like trainer hopping. Yeah, um, there's and no clarity. Yeah. So mm. if anybody is uh, making a living out of training dogs, what they do likely works. Otherwise they wouldn't be making a living out of it, right? Yeah. In one way or another it works, but half of it isn't going to work. Mm. And, and so half of it mixed with half of something else isn't going to work. So see it through. 
Uh, and if it's something that you're uncomfortable with, then then abandon it. Sure, no problem. But don't be like, oh, I'm halfway through this and I know better, so I'll implement this other piece as well. That's where things get squirrely and people fuck up their dogs is yeah. when they- When they, they add bolt-ons to it that yeah. have no place being there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and you know, especially if you look at someone that's been doing it for 40 years and they've got a method and it works, it works. Mm. So, like, you probably can't add too much to this. Like, maybe if you see it through, then you go, okay, here were the holes I saw and I know better and I can add these things through. But maybe things pan out in the long run that you don't yet understand. So, that's my advice. Uh, I think that get as much info as you can, but one chunk at a time. Yep. Try and really distill what one system at a time or one technique at a time or mm. whatever. Yeah, I think that's sage advice. I agree with that as well. I think that I guess that's why I use Bruce Lee's philosophy point because a yeah. lot of times if you come in with your, with your glass already full, it's going to make it difficult for you to take anything in because you have that preconception that, well, you know, maybe I know as much as you do. I've had people that have come on the course before and they've, they've known a lot of things. You can see them sitting there with their arms crossed thinking, I'm not a participant in this course, I'm a spectator because I already know the information. And towards the end of them, you can see them relax and they come up and they'll say, and what I'm talking to people about and what I'm teaching things isn't my original material and I, I never propose it to be. And you and I have professed this along the way. We haven't got on here and said, we're the oracles of the be all and end all. We've never no, professed that and we never would. What we've learned has been, it's been a collection of some of the most fantastic material that people have trifled with over the years. And it's an interpretation of what their work is as we understand it. And that, I guess that's what people do. But where you do discover whether it works or not is in the pragmatic side of it. You know, once you take the theoretical side and apply it um, in a practical sense, that's when you truly discover if it works or not. Mm. And I guess at the end of the day, when you're talking about funneling it down, it comes to results. This is why I always say to every single student that ever listens to anything that I say is use what works. If they come to me and said, Glenn, you've told me to do this and Pat told me to do this and Pat's method worked over your method, you'll never get an argument out of me. If I did, it would be through pure spite or jealousy or stupidity, one of those. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is if I blocked someone from doing another technique, another trainer said, which was more beneficial, understood by them, digested well and resulted in a better pragmatic outcome, I'm a fool. Mm -hmm. I'm an absolute fool. Mm -hmm. And anybody else out there who's doing that same sort of thing should be shunned. Because they're not helping, they're hindering you and your development ongoing. Mm. The other thing I was just sort of thinking about, man, this is a bit of a, a heavy, heavier episode, right? It, that's okay. It's good. Life it's, advice rather yeah, than Yeah, I like advice. it. I like it. Well, do the listeners like it, Glenn? I think they do. Uh, <laughs> so the other thing I was thinking, you know, the dog world is, is an interesting place. So Kelly says to new trainer coming into the industry, right? Yep. And I think there's a lot of really callous people in the dog world. And again, we kind of create these people a little bit. I don't know how it got started, but there's a lot of people who just want to fuck people over and just want to lift themselves up by pushing other people down. Yeah. And I think as much as possible, as, as tempting as it can be to get stuck in that cycle is to not do that, right? I think that as hard as you can, just try and stay away from those things. So there's people who do critiques of people's work just for the sake of pushing down that person. Yeah. And I just think stay away from that kind of thing. I think that the question you've got to ask yourself, what's the MO of this person? 
Yeah, but and, also and that's like, what I do a lot now when I'm starting to see these, yeah. you know, online critiquers and so forth. Is what's your modus operandi? Mm. What are you trying to do? You know, yeah. and that's a question that. Look, I've done some nasty things to people in the past. I'm ashamed of it, you know, and I make amends for it. I've I've said on these episodes before that I've rang people to apologise to them for being a, a shit to people, mm-hmm. and I'm not proud of it. It was just, you know, like. You and I talked about it a while ago. The person you were 10 years ago is not the person you are today. Mm-hmm. And that's what I reflect on is that I've become – I'm a bit, much better person today than I was 20 years ago, you know, in, in as far as my ego, the thoughts and feelings I have about certain things, you know, th- things that I would have done recklessly as a guy in my 20s. There's no way I would do them now. You know, mm. I'd, I'd just think to myself how callous and cruel to even think or act on those things, yet – I have done them before, and many people have. I mean, I know other people who have been horrible to me in the past, and the new emergence of that person, the philosopher that's emerged in them and the person who's blossomed in them, they're a different person. When they've come and asked for forgiveness and been genuine about it, I've thought to myself, you really are a different person. Mm. You know, you you are trying, you are, but there's some people out there who they just don't seem to be able to skip the track. They mm. keep getting stuck on that rut. It's a bit of an illusion. And I think sometimes you've got to be also be careful that the person who comes to you trying to line your palm with silver, sometimes you've got to look into that person if, if they're genuine or not. Yeah. That's a difficult thing. Yeah. There's a lot of people that will give strong, unsolicited opinions on yep. things. And yeah, I, I think I think it's kind of a waffly way, both of us, of, of saying that there's a lot of fuckery and just kind of stay out of it. I think that's yeah. the best advice that I have for anybody coming into the dog world. And, and, and learn and do, you yeah. know, they're the th- they're, I think that's good advice is, is learn good stuff, go out and do it. Yeah. Um, because that really is the trajectory, the trajectory of greatness, mm. you know, learning good theory, getting out and practicing it, realize when you're making a mistake, stop it and then go back and not, not think to yourself, oh, this is a complete disaster, but just look at it and go, where do I need to now correct my path? Yeah. Where do I need to get back on track? Because I'm off track. That's fine. It happens to everybody. Every single person who is researching any type of material will get off track. Yeah. It's just finding how to get back to the correct track and realizing, okay, now we're on the path to success again. Yeah. I think for the last few minutes trying to figure out the best way to explain this, but you know, I've been fucked over by numerous people in the dog world and everybody's got stories of someone fucking them over in the dog world, right? Yeah. And, and you th- develop calluses because of it. Yeah, but so I think it's important for that only to affect the way that you treat that person, not all people. Yep. So you see people who then become really closed off and untrusting and very, you know, they might leave the whole industry or whatever because of one or two occasions with particular people. And I think that if someone, if that happens, that should really only affect the way you treat that person, not everybody else. Yeah, yep, um, totally agree. And, and you leave yourself open to then getting fucked over by other people. Yep, sure you do. But you also, I find a lot easier to go to bed at night. Yeah. Um, so that's my advice on that. And it's where it's sort of, oh, this is <laughs> this is the, the philosophical viewpoint of the, it's a very philosophical episode now, but of the dog world. But uh, I think that that's very common. I think that anybody that's been around in this industry long enough will tell you about the person that fucked them over. Yeah. And I used to really truly, I used to say all the time, ah, oh, nah, it's a misunderstanding. People in the dog world, they don't. 
they don't write good contracts and they don't understand, but no, nah, people really do intentionally just fuck other people. I've, I've come to learn, yeah. but I think it's important to only have that effect, how you treat them and usually just then go, okay, we're done and move on to other people and don't carry the, the grudge that you have or the burden that that person gave you into your other relationships. I think that's really important because then you're just setting those relationships up to fail. And then ultimately for you to become the person that fucked you over. Right. Yep. Some other advice I can just add on to that bolt onto the end of that is it comes from the movie The Dark Knight when Bruce Wayne is talking to Alfred and he he's trying to understand the nature of why people do what they do, mm-hmm. you know, asking that question again, why do people do what they do? And he's trying to understand the mindset of the Joker. And Alfred turns around to him and tells him a story about this bandit that he encountered when he was on some tactical mission mm. uh, in Burma or something, I think. And he kept robbing trains or whatever it was. Basically, what he was doing was stealing jewels, etc. And I think that Alfred was saying that, you know, he went into a village and saw a child playing with a, a ruby the size of a, a mandarin or something like that. And he said, well, you know, why would people do those sort of things? He said, some people just want to watch the world burn. They couldn't give a fuck. Yeah. You know, it was never about robbing the, the jewels. He just gave them away. It was just simply for the fuckery of it. Yeah. And some people are just like that. And, and there's no point in trying to understand them. It's just move away from them. Just, mm. just partition them to the side and get on with life. Because the more that I've got mixed up with people like that trying to get into their head, the more it's fucked my head up. Mm. So I just partition them leave them to the side and I now spend time with quality people. I spend time with people who help me grow and help me become a better person because the other people destroy me and they, they make me a worse person. They make me full of rage, make my ego swell. They make me want to think about vengeance and horrible things like that. And it's terrible and it's consuming and Mm. it's basically psychological cancer. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's move on. Okay. Okay. I hope that answers your question, Kelly. (laughs) Uh, All right, Barry Magda. If possible, I'd like to hear more of Pat's thoughts on the psychology of the box. I think I understand how mechanics of its use, but would like to understand more about the why. For example, why do you think it works for resource guarding? Thanks in advance if you can get to it. So, I mean, there's so much content on this about there, but it's the whole point is that, you're showing the dog that it should lean into difficulty. That's the whole point of it. That's yep. the whole point of the box is when things get tough, that's a good sign because things are about to get better yep. and we're slowly incrementally toughening the dog. And, you know, um, on the box, it doesn't matter. Like not only do the dimensions of the box not matter, but the box doesn't even matter. It's just a behavior. It's yep. just the one that we've chosen. Yeah. Right? People have been using plastic tubs and. Yeah. And- but I mean, even like you could do all these same things and expect your dog to hold the sit right? Like you could do the exact same stuff. The box is not what's important. It's just a behavior. So it's a way to go to the dog. This is the thing I need you to do in spite of distractions and you'll be reinforced if you do it. Right. And then it's in spite of difficulties, not distractions. And, you know, as for why it works for resource guarding is that you, you can show like, I bring the resources. I don't take them. This is where I think that like, and we spoke about it in part one, the fundamental misunderstanding of, of training with existential food is never that you take food away. It's not about scarcity. You never, ever take it away. It's that behavior brings it or does not bring it. That's, that's, that's what's super important. And Mm. so if you're taking the, if you're taking a box full of food away from your dog, then yeah, that could create resource guarding. And no mm-hmm. one ever told you to do that. It's when the dog is not, if you're in the phase where there actually is food in the box and the dog is no longer eating the food, you take it away. So yeah. you show him he has a window. 
But then in, in the case of resource guarding, if the dog wants to bark and growl at you or guard you guard the nothing, right? You just go, well, that's not going to bring you anything. Yep. And it's simple as that, right? It doesn't need to, this is, it's the most overthought thing ever. <laughs> it's nice to see that people are really getting invested in this and they're asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing to do is as long as we don't, get on a rat wheel about it and it becomes a negative feedback cycle that people just can't get off that same track of thinking all the time, you know, that's not beneficial, but it is beneficial that people are looking deeper into the philosophy of the box and the psychology around it. I'm enjoying some of these questions and that people are very excited to use it because there's so many cases where box training is applicable. I mean, anybody who's got a rescue dog and they've got problems with them should immediately start taking up box training. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a therapy that people should start working with almost immediately. In fact, I can't think of a case where I I couldn't see a dog benefiting from it. Yeah. Let me go down a question because Cassidy Blakely then says, "Can you talk a little about the box with resource guarding dogs? This has been interesting to me." Mm. And Nick Sutton answers a question pretty well there, but it is about that. It's about showing the dog the box is just a behavior. So with resource guarding, like how you would normally treat it, it's not like the box is going to be some magical fix of that. It's just our way to do it. But the principles of everything else still apply, right? Yep. Like if you are familiar with resource fixing a resource guarding issue in one in one other way, then that is going to apply over to it. But it really is about showing the dog like you should lean into struggle. And yep. and you can show a dog there's a behavior that, that no longer brings reinforces and the and in the learning phase anyway, the only motivator that you have, the negative that you have is the compulsion to do it, like hunger. So I think you're dead right. I, I can't think of a dog that doesn't benefit from it. And but people are doing it. They're just doing it like people it's not like it's some fancy new thing. And and I was actually just reading comments before someone was in a different post, someone was asking something about what do you get people to use as a box or whatever? And this is one of the reasons why I'd resisted making boxes to sell to people for so long, but I wanted people to do it. So, and I knew they were already motivated. So I made boxes and sold them that way, but I don't like to sell them because I don't, it's, it it looks like a gimmick. Mm. Right. And so if I was like, Hey, here's this technique that is first of all, complex and you know a bunch of dog trainers have a hard time wrapping their head around it right so for the average person it's just outrageous makes no sense and here's this box that i sell for 80 dollars, right that that you have have to use for it to work right i could see then how people would go oh that fucker was just trying to sell me this stupid box for 80 bucks yeah right and that's why i say like what you use doesn't matter and i prefer not to sell the boxes because i don't want people to think i'm trying to sell them a box right? yeah and the truth is like i say people have been doing this like you look at anybody that's training their dog in psa training for a level one to uh when the decoy is going to throw the distractions in front of the dog and the dog has to hold it down right they're doing the box just without the box yep. it's the exact same thing Likely they're going to have taught their dog to down already. So they've taught the behavior, which is why we put the food in the box at the start. The decoy is going to prevent us, present a a stimulus like that you could perceive at that point as being either a distraction that the dog wants to look at or a motivator to bite the decoy. Either one doesn't matter. And then the handler is going to go over and reinforce the dog for not having broken the position. He's going to stay in the position that we wanted, right? In the down. And the handler is going to go over and likely pay him in position, food in place, right? And say, yeah, you're on the right track. Mm. That is the exact same principles. That is the exact same thing. It's just missing the box, yep. right? So it's not like this is a new, 
it's not like this is a new technique and you don't even need the box. But what the box allows us to do is then go, okay, like here's a, a sacrificial behavior. Like here's mm. where I'm going to teach you about focus and commitment. And if things go bad, well, I can do it somewhere else. But also it gives the dog a very narrow focus of behavior. Like keep your head in this box. And it means that the, the room for error is much smaller. So mm. like in my scenario there where the dog is down in front of a decoy and they throw a can curtain in front of him. If he shudders away from the can curtain, are we sure that he's actually using, is he concerned about the can curtain? Is this an environmental problem or is he better positioning himself to bite the decoy? Which one of those is happening? Well, you know, maybe we're not going to be able to determine that so easily, but that's why I teach these things in isolation in the box so mm. that I can say he has no motivation for it that. It isolates. Can yeah. yeah. It's isolative. Yeah. yeah. And, and it really brings everything down to the most fundamental base layer mm. so that we can go, okay, you're hundred percent good with this can curtain. Good to go. All right. That's out of the arsenal. Now when a decoy throws that, I know that if the, I see a reaction, it's not because of that can curtain, because I brought that out in isolation with your head in the box. And it was just me and you in an empty room in the can curtain and you're fine. Mm. So in the can curtain, lands in front of you and you twist your body around. Now I know you're not avoiding that. You're prepping to bite that decoy. And so now I've got to start. It's it's not environmental problem that you have. Yep. It's a neutrality issue that you have, yep. right? So it allows us just to absolutely narrow it down to its smallest component part and identify what is the issue when we see it in real life. This falls in line with the quote, it doesn't matter what you think and feels, it matters what the dog thinks and feels. And the importance of this is what you're talking about is synchronizing you and the dog knowing and feeling the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And understanding, okay, well, like the, the only way you can really truly understand what's happening in a dog's mind is to read his behavior exactly. and move the variables. Yeah. Right. Because we can't read the feelings. We can only read the behavior. That's right. All we can see is what the dog is actually doing. Yep. And, and there's a lot of behaviors. There's a lot of sort of mindsets that I think express themselves in, in similar behaviors. Yep. Right. So we need to be able to remove the variables and go, okay, like my dog's, you know, locked staring and panting. Okay. Well, is that a fear response? Is he in freeze or is he locked in prey? Yeah. Because it looks the same. It looks the same. From a photo, that that's the same thing. Even mm. from a video, a dog that is completely shut down yep. and locked in freeze as in terrified to the point where he's no longer in control of his body, mm. right? Versus a dog that has locked in prey and is waiting for the opportunity to strike. Yep. In a clip, that's the same thing. And yeah. the only if you took thing- a photo of it, it'd be very, very difficult to try and tell the, the I mean, you would have to be an extremely well-trained person to pick it. And even then, I mean, I've, I've seen pictures of dogs before and unless you can see the next frame of what happens next, you can't pick it. That's right. Yeah. Mm. And so I think that that's the whole point of this stuff is to remove the variables and go, okay, well, I know we ain't free. That's probably, yep. he's locked in it because it, I know that he's not scared of that. I've yeah, tested it's a synchronized that. understanding. Yeah, I've mm. tested that. Yep. I've tested the hypothesis of whether he's scared of that in another environment. That ain't it. Mm. He's locked. Yep. Right now, that's an extreme example, but it's it's just one of where it's a it's a, it's a really good example. Yeah, mm. I like it. Yeah, I like it too. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed listening to that explanation. Thank you. I enjoyed saying it. I don't think, I know you've really developed a solid understanding of the boxes, which is why you teach it so well. When I first saw it, I thought it was a gimmick, mm. um, like most people do. Yeah. I, I could eat my hat on those thoughts and feelings about that because it's certainly not. In fact, when I'm dealing with people now with aggression, I immediately say to them, you need to listen to the box episode. Mm-hmm. That's something you need to start working on with your dog straight away. Yeah. It, it's not the fix, but it's certainly the start of a solid journey. Yeah, we, I think we made some mistakes in that that first episode. Of, Which you acknowledge. Yeah, of yeah. just 
inferring that we take the box away from a dog that's only stopped eating from it momently. I don't feel like that's what it says, but people are making that mistake, so obviously it does, yep. right? I can't keep blaming people when yeah. there's enough of the same error. It's obviously something. Yeah. It's obviously the way I've said it, but please spend three bucks, go and listen to the the Patreon, the Patreon episode version, yeah, because we cleaned it up. Yeah, that mm. will that will give you the yeah everything you need to know on it. Yeah, and then there's a Q and A as well that is like covers a lot of all this stuff. It's all there. Or come to ISCP next year. Yeah, so that's what I'm talking on. Yeah, so I'm talking on the box of the IACP. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, just on that, since we don't really have a topic, we're just talking. At IACP, you get like, it, when you're asked to speak, you get like two hours, right? Uh, or it depends on who you are, but what you're doing. But in two hours, I just feel like a lot of people maybe just give an ad for their seminar. Yeah. Because um, you can't get shit across in two hours of a big picture. So what I've chosen to do is just the box because in two hours I can teach it really well. Yep. Right. So I've decided to just go. I think it's a great topic because it's a very popular topic. Yeah. Um, it's one that, I mean, as you can see, there's been a lot of people had a lot of fun with the, the yeah. concept of the box, like what are the dimensions of the box, etc. cetera. But yeah, yeah. it's one, you know, like I've been watching Emma Murdoch. She's been doing it. I know Zoe Needy just, messaged me before and she said her dad made her a box, um, yeah. which he's really pumped about, you know, and it like, they're just some of the people around the world who are developing a real joy of understanding box work. I yeah. mean, it's fantastic. It really is. Yeah. And you just can't deny the efficacy of it. The, the amount of you people cannot. now that are doing it yeah. through, you know, literally thousands of people listen to that episode and, and are implementing it or, you know, and people that learn it from other people, not just me, I didn't invent the shit. And so, there's thousands of people around the world doing it. And mm. and I think when you look at people who are repeating it, who have done it with dogs and then are doing it with the next dog. Like I know that. you didn't invent it, but you explain it well. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's where the benefit comes from is the explanation is very salient and very inclusive. So when people are learning it, they're actually enjoying doing it because it, I mean, it's become like a little mini competition sort of thing where yeah. people are, you know, outdoing each other on their box designs or how well they're doing it, which is, this is cool. It's mm. actually a really good thing. It's a great training aid. And I mean, you know, all of these things like your box, Mike Suttles tubes and so forth like that, these are fantastic training aids. They're not, it's not something you're meant to do all of your life all the time. No. But it's something you can definitely go back and revisit. You can revisit the box time and time again. You can go back to the scent tubes time and time again. You know, they can be a very inclusive addition to the life of the dog and the training that you're doing. Yeah. But it's not something that, you know, you finish your training on that and that's it, you're done. Yeah. 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 It's just a foundation thing. Absolutely. And you can pop back and, you know. It's terrific. It's very I was, good. I was explaining recently is, you know, if you're going to get an extension put on your house, yeah, one of the first things anybody's going to do is just check the foundation. Exactly. Right? 100%. Can, it, can your foundation support, uh, support this new piece that's going on? Yeah. And I feel like as dog trainers, we have to do the same thing. So, you know, mm. in part one, we were talking about how I'm, you know, teaching my dog a more complicated version of a send away, right? Yeah. Like a re-send away, what I'm saying is, you know, before I could do that, there was just a quick session. Like the first step in that was, okay, you remember like how powerfully you need to go to that marker board and understand like that is, that is go to the marker board and stay there until I pull you off of it. Right. Yep. And just go, okay, yeah, it's good. Like I can use that now that will support the next step. Yep. And it, it takes a minute. You know what I mean? Like mm. it's not a case. It's a bolt on, but yeah. it's got to be there to begin with. Yeah. So the yeah. builder's got to get underneath and go, yeah, this can hold the next, the next level. And if it can't, we go, okay, well, we need to bolster this. Yeah. We need to just build this up a little bit. Go back to the foundation. Yeah. And, mm. and 
like I do that with the, all my foundation exercises, the, the hold, the the marker board and the box. Yep. I regularly just revisit these things, especially if I'm going to use something that is a skill that came of that to teach a new thing. I just go back to the absolute basics for one or two sessions and go, yeah, okay, sweet. You remember this perfectly. Okay, cool. Now we're going to build an extension on top of this. We're going to use this foundation skill to teach you something new. But I've just first have to remind you that this is the foundation, right? This is where it's going to come from and you're doing that perfectly. Okay. Here comes the next step. Yep. Huh. All right. Nice. Emily Manuel. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, she's from Canine Resolutions. Yeah, I remember yeah. she she, um, she was on our- She's a vet nurse. Yep. She uh, was she's on our awesome. episode that we did down in Melbourne there. Yep. 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 She's awesome. She's awesome. All right. She's a lovely did you lady. hear that, Emily? Yeah. With pet dog clients, how do you keep them committed and coming back? I know our goal is not to be needed anymore. But if the job's not finished and the behavior isn't modified, how do you keep them committed? (laughs) That is the golden ticket question that I think every trainer around the world would try and answer. I think the best way I could try and answer that is get them to fall in love with their dog and training. Yeah. If you can do that, then you'll get them coming back. Yeah. And the other thing is without, you know, without being a, a charlatan or, a disgusting business person is don't give them too much too soon because they won't they won't know how to digest it properly anyway. Yeah, that's something I'm guilty of a lot. Yeah, it's overwhelming people. Well, that's the problem, and that's what stops people from coming back is that they sometimes they can feel stupid in a consult mm-hmm. um, because that's a problem. And I've done it too. I've scienced the fuck out of them, mm. and I can see them nodding their head, but their eyes are blank. You mm. know, and it's just like oh, I'm dumb. That's not a statement you want to resonate in a client. You don't want to make them feel like they're dumb or they're lacking intelligence or they're incapable of understanding. What you want to do is you want to you want to ask them some questions about who they are and what they understand. And then you what you want to do is start developing the story with them and say, okay, this is how we do chapter one because this is a 20-chapter book. You also don't want to be that sort of person who just goes in there with the ambition to have 20 lessons. Mm-hmm. I've had people before that have insisted on coming back to see me and, you know, like they'll send me a clip of their dog and I'll say, you really don't need to. You're welcome to if you want to, mm-hmm. but you don't need to because what you're doing is going great. As long as you keep this trajectory going, it's going really well. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? You know, this is a Brent Dry question because I feel like he would answer it best, but I, I could probably – anticipate what he would say is mm-hmm. exactly as you say, get people to fall in love with their dog again, yep. right? Make people really happy with their dog, get their, get their dog doing something cool. But something I see from the canine company guys is like build community. Yeah. So I think that like, this is not something I'm into. So like, I don't do group classes or anything like that. I'm more fix people's problems or I'm work towards, uh, you know, no, achieving you, a goal. You do build community. We, we are community builders, you and I. No, no, but I mean like in my individual like pet client. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. that's no, a question no, yeah, here, I right? understand. Yeah. Like I'm more – with the pets that I deal with, I'm more of an interventionist. Yeah. Like I'm there at the – as a last resort normally and not by choice. It's just sort of how it panned out for me. Yeah. Is I'm usually there as like the, the – they've gone to get their dog euthanized and the vet says, Hey, give this guy a go. Or someone has said that. And then I personally, I usually just way I'm kind of working at the moment is I kind of tend to just get people out of the weeds and then hand them over to someone else. Yep. Um, Cause I'm not good for ongoing support at the moment because I'm traveling too much. Yep. But I think building community is the way to do it. If you get people coming to classes regularly and, you know, I think from a business standpoint, you know, 
selling memberships rather than individual classes, that kind of thing. So then people go, okay, well, like I've paid my year's worth of classes. I should go to it. You know what I mean? Or you have kind of, you know, like a direct debit sort of thing. So they're paying whether they turn up or not. So they're probably then they're motivated to turn up. And, mm. you know, like just a, it, there's, a, there's a lot of signs to that as like it's as easy it is to log in something and cancel it. That's a real barrier to a lot of people. And then once they've paid, they feel compelled to do it. Yep. Um, so you can keep them coming in that regard. And it sounds like that's like I want to keep taking their money, but it's more like I want them to keep coming. Um, if you're a business person, you've still got to do business. Yeah. You know, like you've still got to market, you've still got to attract people, you've still got to get a clientele. Um, I'm not talking about the fact of making money. There's nothing wrong with making money as yeah, long as you have, have integrity in what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and that's that's all I'm saying is there's plenty of people out there who have um, compromised a lot of integrity and cost a lot of us just by their actions alone. That's something I see a little bit of a problem in. I mean, you, you can never stop someone from being – uh, a jerk off unless they start breaking the laws and you can actually stop them from doing it. Yeah. But, mate, I wholeheartedly agree. What the canine company have done down in Melbourne is fantastic. They yeah. really have developed a fantastic atmosphere where people feel very inclusive, very welcomed, very much a part of a strong, supportive community. And, you know, that's what more of us should aspire to. Yeah. I think so. As for people coming back, if they like it, if they enjoy it, they come back. Simple yeah. as that. If it's yeah, not seen as burdenful and like something, fuck, I have to do this. Because this, if it's fuck, I have to do this, then the second the dog is no longer displaying the behaviours, yep. the Band-Aid is on there, they're, they're out. Yep. But if you can convince them that to like it and like the people, and that's how you get people who, you know, oh, look, my dog's fixed or my dog's perfect. Now I'm on the path to helping other people and becoming an instructor within this community or that's right. like a helper yeah. or something, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the way to keep people coming back. Yeah. It's, it's, it follows the foundations of shaping yeah. just enough to keep you intrigued. And I think you're right. I think we like, I think our, this podcast is a community. It of, is a community. Of, of knowledge the dis- sharing. The discussion sure. group is a community. Yeah, People love getting on there and, and, you know, being heard and using yeah. their voice. And, and well, Something we were just talking about before, in a local dog group like the, I think it was Inner West Dog Owners or something like that, some lady was asking about Border Collie and she wanted a breeder basically and people were just giving a sass about getting a, a purebred dog or just a buying a dog from a breeder. Yep. And I, I posted a link to the our discussion group and was like, hey, join this group and ask whatever specific questions about dogs you want. You won't get any sass in yep. there. Like that's where people will be able to give you legitimate answers. And then I just saw she's posted, this will date the show, but she's just posted like, what is this group? <laughs> she's never heard of the podcast, right? What is this group? Who are you people? But she'll be able to answer the questions like people will – she can ask whatever specific dog questions you want and people typically in that group will then go like here's the answer to the best of my knowledge rather than here's my uh here's my opinion that i want to cram down your throat right so i'm i'm very proud of that do you know what talking about being proud of things one thing that i'm i am really proud of that you and I and our administrators have done is that we have created a sanctuary away from a lot of trolls mm. and it's not by being overbearing and being, you know, overlords on there or anything like that and squashing people, suppressing uh, active talk. What we have done is we've just taken away people who are just crazy. Yeah. And stopped. Just, just unhelpful. Exactly. Yeah. Kyle Gillespie, what are some indications and signs to help you choose the right dog? for let's say a sport, but still being involved in the family, just like Remy, down to breed, temperament, stability, and drive? I think that's a pretty easy answer. Like decide what you want to do, look at the dogs doing it, 
and then seek out from those bloodlines. Yeah. I think that's really the – it's as simple as it needs to be. Yeah, it's it's not always a clear path to guaranteeing that you're going to no. get that dog, and that's the difficulty of it. And we've uh, – Genetics know, is a dice roll no matter yeah, what. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked about this a multitude of times in on these podcasts – uh, in forums, uh, it's still a good question. I yeah, encourage yeah. it to be asked because if you're not sure of the answer, it certainly is something that should be discussed openly and as many times as it should, as it needs to be done. But, uh, you know, like I refer back to the Superdog program at Lachlan Air Force Base when they were trying to determine, you know, the puppy that you get at eight weeks, will that turn into the dog that you're thinking of? The predetermination of that was it doesn't. And yeah. that's the difficulty that a lot of agencies have is, you know, what's the viability of having a breeding program when we can't actually guarantee genetically what we're going to produce? Yeah. The difficulty is, is that it's a roll of the dice. A lot of people who have been successful with dogs and got the perfect dog have swapped out dogs. Yeah. That's the reality of the story. It doesn't mean that they euthanized dogs, although they were, you know, these dogs were led down to an unsuccessful ownership pathway. In some cases, they were better off placed in the homes that they were being in. Yeah. I've certainly had dogs before that I've placed in homes and they were in a better place to be because they're getting a family who actually cares for them rather than being a group of dogs that are not going to get the entire attention they need to do. Yeah. Or, you know, being shown less favour because the dog that you're interested in working is not that dog. Yeah. Uh, This relates back to what we're talking about, like what is the purpose of this dog? Yep. And if if you're really set on this dog's going to be a competitor and you go, well, mate, this dog wants to be a pet, then he's better off with you're going to resent him because you wanted a competitor. Yeah. Uh, and, and the dog will suffer. Yeah. And so make him someone's pet. Yeah. Give him away. There's like, and this is, a, you know, it's so easy. I mean, we've talked about this many times, but it's so easy to rehome a dog that isn't like a, if it just hasn't turned out to if be a If it is a, dog a lunatic working dog. Yeah. And so <laughs> give it a bunch of obedience yep. and sell it as a, as a trained pet. Yeah. Or give it to a close friend as a trained pet. Like people are going to take that. I'm telling you. Yeah, like will. that's very easy to, to offload. Mm. And start again. Yeah. But I think one thing that sort of uh, I've seen come up a few times as well, and, and I know we've discussed it, but I'll bring it up again, is like breed selection is one thing. Bloodline selection is another. I think look at older bloodlines because then there's less variability, right? Yeah. People are going to know Then more the recessive about, is good. Yeah. People are going to mm. give, give you a better chance at yep. finding the thing that you want. Still a dice roll. You don't know what could come out, but mm. you're more likely. But also like- it really grinds my gears. There's two things that piss me off is when people go, all right, I'm going to get an off-breed dog to compete in this sport, right? And like, it's fair enough if you have an off-breed dog and you go, oh, I'm going to give that sport a go, great. You Mm. and your dog have a great time. But to then go, okay, I am going to get uh, I am get. I'm going to get a rally car and try and compete in Formula One. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like if you have one and you go, "Ooh, Formula One looks cool," I'm going to give that a go. No worries, and and acknowledge that you're not going to win. Right? Yeah. But if you then go, "I'm going to be the winner of Formula One," and I'm going to go out and buy a rally car. Good luck. That does my head in. Mm. And and people are like, "Oh, I'm going to prove that it can be done." Like you got to see. Oh, we spoke about him at part one. So like Jonathan Katz is a good example, right? He is a uh, like a cornerstone PSA guy, right? Yeah. Um, uh, director, judge. Uh, all those things has two dogs through to level two to level three and has a third one on the way. Yep. He has a band dog that he's working on as like a project. So he has clocked the sport twice and he's on his way to Did doing you get it, it from Katrina third Hartwell? Uh, no, he got it for someone. In How the do States. you say? <laughs> <laughs> but so he's gone, okay, I want the challenge 
right? He's also doing French ring with one of his say three dogs. Awesome. I want the challenge mm. of trying to do this with a dog not designed for it. Yeah, right? it's not going in there with unrealistic and unhealthy and, expectations. But he is a person who is exceptional at the sport yeah, yeah. and he's, has yeah. and has set himself the challenge of doing that. And mm. then I see people who have never competed in yeah. the sport go, I am going to get an off-breed dog and mm. I'm going to show these people that it can be done. I'm telling you, what you're going to show people is like your own heartache, heartache and frustration. Mm. That's what you're more likely to show people. And so I feel like he's a really good example of someone who, yes, Jonathan, for sure, like that's a great challenge to set. He, For him, that's fantastic. He's clocked the sport twice on his way to doing it a third time. Set yourself the challenge of doing it with an off-breed dog. Yep. When some random Jono decides, I'm going to be the one that proves the point, I'm like, hmm. I don't think you are. Mm. You're probably just going to upset yourself and lead to a life of frustration with this dog. Yeah. Look, I, I've said it openly before. I admire people who do things that other people can't do or won't do. Like I do have admiration when I watch a dog that shouldn't be involved in those sports that can do it. But in saying that, I don't think it's great and I don't encourage somebody to try and win a Formula One and they've got a broken down jalopy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You so, know, I mean, that is a lot of heartache and that, that is only setting yourself up to fail. Yeah. 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 And so, I don't know, I, I just feel like unless you are exceptionally skilled and are, are really truly setting the challenge because you're ready for the next challenge because you've done it twice and nearly a third time, that's mm. that's the example of like, fuck, good for him. I hope it pans out and he enjoys the process. Yep. But if you were trying to prove a point, you're probably going to prove the opposite, I think. There's another point I want to add to this and- I'm sure this is a bit of an echo chamber as well, but what I do want to add here is take your time when you're buying your puppy. Mm. Like don't rush into anything. I've I've mentioned this so many times and I have throughout the years. And even when people have come to buy puppies off me, I remind them this is not the last puppy on earth. You know, like I've had people have come to me and they've looked, we've had a litter of puppies there and they've said, oh, you know, this is what I'm after. And, I, and they said, can you guarantee that? And I've said, no. I don't guarantee anything long-term. Yeah. I just cannot do it. And I said, anybody else who's doing it is a bone-faced liar. Yeah. And I said, but, you know, I don't think what you're looking for in what you, your descriptors are available, what I've got. Here's a list of other breeders that you can go to or are, who are ethical people, and they will help you out if you don't get the dog you're after. Like if you're specifically looking for sport or law enforcement or high-level detection or anything like that, you know, these are the characteristics. The ones that I've got here, they're probably the outliers of what you're looking for and they're not going to give you satisfaction at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, most other breeders, anyone who's breeding, if you are listening to this, you know, have some ethics when people of that calibre come back because you're doing yourself a great service if you send them out into the community. If you haven't got what they want, either A, put them on a waiting list and be honest about them and, and tell them and communicate with them and be fair to them, and if you are fucking them around, give their deposit back to them, mm. or send them to somebody else if you can't furnish with their needs. Yeah, agreed. Hey, I'm just reading through these questions. How long have we been going? We're going to uh, run out of time again. Uh, hour, tw- hour 15? Yeah. So I'm going to jump a bunch of questions because I said that I was going to answer this one first, and then we didn't even put it in part okay. one, yep. and then I think we have to do it finish because i got to go. Yep. But Paul Doyle says – Oh, Why? God. <laughs> That's a good question. Okay. All right. <laughs> Why are so many trainers using numerous clicks versus one click these days? Pros and cons. Right. So here's why I think that's happening. I'm going to close my phone because that's the last question I'm going to answer today. Um, here's why I think that's happening. I think that it is a misunderstanding or a, an unintentional misuse 
of the dopamine jackpot, right? Mm-hmm. So what I think people sort of, when they, everybody in dog world has been told to go and watch this dopamine jackpot video, right? We've yep. said it a million times. Bobby Sapolsky. Uncle Bobby. Yeah. And so where people misunderstand is that they think that the light is, you know, we all know that the light is what brings the the dopamine. So it's the the light announces the opportunity to do the work and then that gives the 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 reinforcer. Yep. And it turns out that the reinforcer is not what brings dopamine, nor the work, it's the signal, the light, yep. right? It's the opportunity. Yeah. The discovery. What I think people likely misinterpret that to mean is that the clicker is the light, right? Mm-hmm. And in the learning phase of the clicker, it is, but then your goal is for the light to be the command for every behavior. Mm. So here's the thing, right? If I uh, click, now my dog knows the clicker, right? If I click, the work is actually the taking of the reinforcer and then the reinforcer is the food or whatever, right? So the system works. And then if you go to a variable schedule, multiple clicks will mean that there's a spike in the dopamine. Every time the dog hears the click, 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 you'll get a spike in the dopamine. Yeah, it's keep going. You're on the right track. Well, even though like you'll see a lot of people when the dog um, uh, jackpots or does something particularly well, they'll click multiple times or even during the feeding, they'll be like, they'll be delivering food and they'll be clicking multiple times. Mm. And for sure, you see the dogs like pump up in excitement and the dopamine sort of keeps hitting and the dogs keep pushing into the people trying to take the reinforcer. And that works, but there's no benefit to that. Like, Mm. because what you really want is to then push that down the chain for the dopamine spike to come at the signal to do the work, right? So that multiple signals of behavior will punch the dog up in dopamine. And people know this intuitively, whether they really have done it for this reason or they've just done it because they've noticed that it works. But you see people who do like often referred to as like power up behaviors, spins Mm. and that kind of stuff. All that is, is giving the dog an opportunity to do a multitude of behaviors quickly without reinforcement before you ultimately ask them for the the behavior that you really want, say the heel that will be for a long time. And then you're hoping that the spike in dopamine carries out throughout that long period of work. We have an entire Patreon episode on this, right? Because I I break this down into- Multiple um, markers. Yeah. Well, no, no, not in the multiple markers one. There's a whole one on, there's a whole one of me, a YouTube video of me uh, explaining dopamine jackpot, right? But so the multiple clicks announcing a jackpot, yes, it will bring the dog up in that moment, but it fucks you other places, right? So there's no, it's not like it's a terrible thing to do, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think that it is, I don't think that it brings you anything. In fact, I think that it diminishes from the single click, right? Because the point of the clicker is that you're meant to uh, announce, it's a, it's a neutral tone that announces a package and the dog will have to come to you to find out the package, right? But if you give multiple clicks when you intend a jackpot, you may as well be using a verbal marker, mm-hmm. right? Because then it's no longer, you know, you, the dog isn't going to fly to you to find out. You're announcing what it's going to be the same way you do when you use a verbal marker and you get overly excited. So I think that's why people are doing it because they get a more powerful response from the dog, but it's too late at that point. You yep. want that more powerful response to be at the command, mm. not at the click. So uh, it's not like it's the end of the world and people do that. In fact, loads of people do it and they get great success, but I prefer for it just to be one single click and that announces a variable package and the dog will find out if it's a, if it's a jackpot when he takes it, yep. right? Not as he's on his way to take it. I'm not telling him this was the, the ultimate rep. Yep. So I think that that's the reason why people are doing it because they see the spike. And I think 
we really need to, and I'll have a whole video explaining this. You can jump onto Patreon and understand it because it's it's more complicated than I can explain in this sort of time frame. Yep. Is that the goal is to make the signal, the light in Sapolsky's experiment, be the command to do the behavior, mm-hmm. so that every time you ask your dog to do something, it's stoked, it's happy, it's it's gets the dopamine hit from just being asked to do it, yep. knowing that that will then that is conditional on doing the work, he'll get the reinforcer. Mm-hmm. And then you can give a, a quick sequence of behaviors to get a, a spike in dopamine. Now, for me personally, I, I just would tell my dog, sit, place. You know, I, I give known commands and a lot of people then will do spins and what they call like power-up behaviors. They're the same thing. That's the yep. exact same thing. It's just the way to bring on like behavioral momentum, yep. get the dog into like, I did a thing, I didn't get paid. I did a thing, I didn't get paid. I did a thing, I just didn't get paid. Just adding a link to the chain. Yeah. And mm. every time that happens, if it's been taught correctly, the dopamine will spike and then yep. the, the behavior that you ultimately ask for that you really do want duration in will be performed powerfully and for a longer duration. Yep. That's my answer. It's a good answer. Yeah. But there's a whole, this is our plug for Patreon. There's a whole episode explaining that Yep, and explaining how to get it. In Which front. one is it? Remind me of the episode. It's, the, it's called Dopamine Jackpot. Ah, yes. Dopamine Jackpot Explained. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It might be in the $10 tier, maybe. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But it's in there. It's the and video it, you did with the whiteboard in the background. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's one of those. And it explains in, in agonizing detail how to get delivery of dopamine from being, over. yeah, from the actual receipt of the reinforcer, because of course, in the very first instance, getting the reinforcer is what brings the dopamine. Yep. And then how to transition that from being taking the reinforcer, hearing the click, performing the behavior, hearing the command. Mm-hmm. And that's where you want it. You want the dopamine spike to be at hearing the command so that the dog feels as though he was reinforced, even though he was just told to do something. Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate goal. That's it. All right. Should we wrap it up? We should wrap it up. All right. Man, we still didn't even get through all these questions, but we've got interviews to do, so we'll have to leave some of them, come back to them. Uh, all right, that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Uh, if you want to support the show, jump on a Patreon. You'll be able to see a lot of the content that we just spoke about there. Mm-hmm. The tiers start at 3 bucks a month, up to uh, and including buying Pat a Lamborghini. Where's my- You don't need one. Call on this. Why but don't you, I need one? If you want to buy a Glenn a Lamborghini, you could do that. I don't want well. a Lamborghini. What do you want? Ferrari. Okay. Yep. That's fine. Yeah. What kind? Doesn't matter. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Anyway. Mm. Uh, I was at a, a function recently and someone was like, you were talking about cars, but we were talking about, oh, if you won the lottery, what would you get? And I was like, probably a bigger van. <laughs> 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 what do I give a fuck about cars? Yeah. I don't give a shit. No. I was like, I'd probably get a bigger van because then I could carry more dogs and stuff. That would yep. be more, that would be handier than the small van that I have. Or um, just a new van. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you want to buy me a new van. <laughs> Another way you can support the show is via Teespring. Jump on there. You can buy some cool merch. Mm. And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Glenn, music.